What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Today here at Rachel's World, let's chat a little bit about you as a literate adult. Now, I know you will say, Rachel, this is a show about children's literacy. Let's talk about literacy for my child. However, I'd like to contend that talking about your literacy is also talking about your child's literacy because you serve as a literacy role model to all the children in your life. Children are very observant, and many of the habits and behaviors they develop are because they watch the adults around them. We want to be an example to our children if we want them to develop good behaviors. So taking a close look at your own literacy habits is a great way to determine if you are modeling literacy for the children in your life. First, let's look at you as a reader. Are you a reader? I'm sure that there are a lot of you out there that will say no, but don't be too quick to judge. First and foremost, don't define reading too narrowly. Just because you don't read books or fiction novels doesn't make you any less of a reader. I have vivid memories of my dad sitting at my grandparents' house reading the newspaper. He was in no doubt a great reader, even if that was the only thing he read. So take a close look at what you read and make sure the children in your life see you doing it. But I'll also say it can't hurt if you expand your horizons a little. If you haven't read a book in a while, check one out. Try lots of different things, because even if you don't succeed, it's great for your children to see you working at developing your tastes and interests as a reader. Now think about other literacy activities. Who are you as a writer? Sometimes literacy activities like this are more hidden to children, because while we may do things like read for pleasure at home, some literacy activities like writing are limited to our workday. So think about ways to let your children see how you write. Take that report you have to write home and let your kids see you work on it. Let them see you write notes or fill out forms online. All of these are the kinds of literacy models children need. So take a moment to think about just who you are as a literate adult, and then find ways you can share these habits and behaviors with your children. Because here at Rachel's World, we know that all you concerned adults out there listening to our show can be the best kinds of literacy role models for your children. In a perfect world for children, learning to read would come hand in glove with learning to write. Taking notes about things we hear or read makes it easier for us to remember and even helps in developing good character traits and virtues. Our first guest, educator and author Mary Bigler, talks to Rachel about a great way to get added value from reading aloud to children. She recommends taking things just a little further, as she'll explain. She also has some great book recommendations. Once a preschool teacher and now a professor, Bigler has spent her life promoting literacy and celebrating the joys of teaching. She's an award-winning professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Eastern Michigan University and author of Lessons Learned. Here's Rachel welcoming Mary Bigler on Worlds Awaiting. Welcome, Mary. I'm glad to have a chat with you today. I'm really interested to have your thoughts on this issue of writing and maybe how writing our own stories can help us learn ethical values. So what role does does writing our own story play in this conversation? 
Well, you know, I think, again, anytime we're reading with children and talking with children, a natural extension is to get them to write their feelings and thoughts. So uh, we make rules. For example, at the beginning of the school years, I have a book called First Grade Do's and Don'ts, and it's kind of a rule, rule book of how we should behave as first graders, the kinds of things, we, you know, we don't stand up in the bus and we don't take our money out of our, you know, wallet and all kinds of things. Uh, but that's after we've heard a book about rules, and I let the children make up their own rules. And a lot of our children's books make natural writing prompts. So we share a story like Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? And all of a sudden the children want to make up their own version. So Pumpkin, Pumpkin, What Do You See? I see a skeleton looking at me. We imitate the authors in the real world in our own way, in our classroom and in, in our homes. We can do that. So I think that having youngsters hear a story and then writing what else could have happened or what might have happened if the character would have done something differently and let them generate their own storyline and then share it with other children. And sometimes the youngsters will say, oh, that's better than what the author wrote. I love that answer or I love that response. And um, that gives children a sense of power but also gets them to think deeply about these very important topics. That process of writing and taking it from the model text and reading the text and then taking it into our own lives and changing it around and being able to to give it another answer. I think when we, particularly when we're talking about things like developing virtues and character development in children is significantly important because they need that chance to then apply what they've learned to their own lives. So that process of writing is really the application process. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, when I deal with the um, virtue of responsibility, teaching children to be dependable and obedient and able to take care of themselves and their possessions, I frequently have fun with a book called Why Do I Have to Make My Bed? It's a nonfiction entertaining, funny book by Wade Bradford, and it examines household tasks from ancient times to the present time. And you know how a lot of times in families we spend time deciding who ought to do what and why and when, and kids will sometimes argue, and so, you know, they say, why do I have to make my bed anyway? And this talks about why we have to take care of certain responsibilities in our household in order just to have the house function well. So one of the fun things I've done with that book is I have the children write down what either they've been told or what they would tell somebody about why you have to make your bed. And, of course, you get some outrageously funny responses from the children when they, when they report why they think they have to make their bed that have really very little to do with reality. But then, on the other hand, you do hear some really good things that I hadn't even heard myself growing up. Uh, there's a great book by Karen Orloff called I Want an Iguana which features a series of notes between a mother and her son, and he's trying to persuade mom to let him get a pet iguana. And the young man clearly shows that he understands the responsibility of being a pet owner. But haven't many parents ended up taking care of the dog after numerous promises from the children that they would be responsible for feeding or walking the dog? So, you know, knowing about responsibility and following through on the appropriate actions takes discipline and repetition until that character trait is deeply ingrained. And writing our own stories help us to to reinforce the message because I've had children write, I want a dog, and they try to persuade mom or dad why they should be allowed to have a dog or I want to have whatever kind of pet. 
And they, they're doing persuasive writing, but at the same time, they are having to think about the character trait of being responsible for the pet. What are they willing to do? And when is it, when are they going to do it even when they're tired and don't want to do it? And um, I just find that to be a very important sense of, for, or a very important part of their development in learning to communicate with their needs and their wants and at the same time being being dependable and responsible. I couldn't agree more. I think you're so right. And to me, it really is a wonderful way because reading and children's books, like you said, we have such a wealth of them that can provide these different options and approaches and stand stances that people would take. And then the writing helps us to take that a step further and figure out how do we apply that in our own situations and in our own contexts and with our own experiences. And so that combination between the two with reading and writing is just a powerful way to approach the the learning and development that kids need and in particularly in a in a safe way in a in a way that isn't uh, going to be too overwhelming or that may be developmentally inappropriate or something that they may not be able to handle yes well that's that's i was thinking the very word powerful when you said it and i was thinking that and yes we want children to deal with age appropriate topics and we want them to be able to identify with the characters in the books. And that's why the children's literature is so valuable, because many of the problems that they hear about in the rest of the world are not age-appropriate. They, they don't have power and control, and they can't do much about those things. But if we're dealing with whether you should take money from your mom's purse or not because you have some pressing thing that you need, <laughs> that's something children understand. That's within their range of, of things that are developmentally appropriate, and it's relevant to their lives, and they will be interested in how other children handle that temptation. And by reading books that feature characters that are doing the right thing, or if the characters are doing the wrong thing, like we can occasionally, for in the, in the wonderful book um, by Mary Hoffman, Amazing Grace, Grace wants to be Peter Pan in her class play. And the other children tell her she can't be Peter Pan because she's a girl and Peter Pan's a boy and she's African-American and Peter Pan is white. And then they have the tryouts, and she's absolutely prepared, and she does a fabulous job. And the kids begin to realize it wouldn't be fair if she didn't get the part. She was prepared. She knew the role. She auditioned. She was the best. She should have the role. And so... That's something children relate to because they're trying out for things every day, whether it's the t-ball team or, you know, they understand about auditioning. They understand about being prepared and being ready. And when they see that, they, they internalize a very important life message. You know, I need to work hard. I need to go after my own dreams. I can't let other people dictate who and what I should be. I need to be my own person. Those are all values or character traits that we want youngsters to have. And they will develop them if they have the opportunity to read about relevant material that they can control and problems that they could solve in picture books and young adult novels. Um, I think that empowers them to make good decisions so they will, when they're in the real world and have real problems to face, they'll be prepared. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I think that idea of relevancy is is particularly critical. We we want these kinds of issues to be relevant and to the needs of children. So as we close up our conversation today, Mary, um, what is what is one or two books that you would recommend that that you find particularly relevant to the lives of children today? Well, and I've mentioned a lot of them already that I love, but there's a wonderful book by Carol McLeod called Have You Filled a Bucket Today? And it's about being kind and saying good things to people and reinforcing uh, positive messages with others. And we talk in classrooms about filling other people's bucket and not being a bucket dipper where you take things out of people. When you say mean or hurtful things, you're taking something out of their bucket. I also love a book called The Crayon Box That Talked, Shane DeRolf, that's spelled D-E-R-O-L-F, The Crayon Box That Talked. I use this with little preschoolers, but I've shared it with high school students. And it's done in poetry, and it really just talks about appreciating everybody's contributions. It's a crayon box that, you know, yellow doesn't like blue, and blue doesn't like green, and green doesn't like red. But then the the crayon box is purchased or given to a little boy who starts drawing a picture. And, of course, he needs the yellow for the sun, and he needs the blue for the sky, and the green for the grass, and the red for the whatever. And the colors begin to see that by themselves they they would not be able to make this gorgeous picture. But all together, with everybody contributing, then we've got a beautiful picture. So we're all important. And then I guess one more that you don't hear as much about anymore, but you and I probably grew up with, it's a still a wonderful story, The Little Engine That Could, Wadi Piper's book about persistence and not giving up. And that is a book that I still love sharing with children, and I, I, I think the message is one that served me well in my life, and I would encourage all parents and teachers to read The Little Engine That Could, an old classic, but a goodie. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate your time today helping us understand about how writing and reading can go together to impact our children in powerful ways. So thank you so much for your time. It has been an honor talking to you. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity to share ideas with you and all of our listeners out there, and I hope that it helps people to realize how important the adults are in the lives of children because they wouldn't know about these wonderful books if they didn't have adults to share them. Bravo! Educator and author Mary Bigler. Talking about complementing reading with writing to encourage and teach positive character traits to children. Next, Rachel welcomes literacy learning specialist Marne Isaacson, who talks about what we can do as adults to help our teens prepare for the reading rigors of college. Freshmen often experience quite a shock when they encounter the kinds of books that await them in the world of higher education. Isaacson earned a master's in educational psychology and research from Bucknell University and a Ph.D. in instructional science and literacy education from Brigham Young University. She has an English as a Second Language, or ESL, endorsement and has been involved in a seven-year research project exploring college reading. Here's Rachel with Marnay Isaacson. 
We're in studio with Marne today. Welcome, Marne. Glad to have you. Glad to be here. You know, I think one of the things that's really important for parents to understand is about how they can particularly help their teenagers and help their teenagers be prepared for college. I know you've been a university professor mm-hmm. for many years, and one of your particular things is... Those and a high school teacher. And a high school teacher. I'd forgotten for even that. more years than college. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. I had forgotten that. Um, so you've taught in all just all ages and in preparing for college. But there's some of those basic skills, particularly when it comes to reading, that I think are so critical for us as adults to ensure that our teenagers are just ready for the rigors of college. So let's start there. Okay. What kinds of things do you think teenagers well, need to know? Well, let me tell you that the statistics are really startling. Uh so many high school students, even AP, even even students who get good grades, are not prepared for the reading rigor of college. And one of the biggest shocks is that 85% of the reading, of the learning they're supposed to do in college comes from reading. They are not used to that. Not at all. And so even good readers don't know how to often do not know how to read academic texts for learning. And I they, think that's important. Yeah, They that, might be great yeah. at Harry Potter and their favorite science fiction or whatever, but reading the chemistry texts and econ texts, whoa, they are stumbling. In fact, this statistics show that 30% of freshmen don't return their second year. And there are many reasons for that, but one of the biggest, whoa, this is way too hard. I'm wasting my parents' money. Our research shows that the two most common strategies college students use, read and reread. If I read it 10 times, I'll get it. doesn't work. And the other is give up and hope the professor covers it in class. So what can teenagers do in high school to get ready for the rigors of reading? I have four main things. Okay, let's talk about those four main okay. things. Okay, One is they need to develop what we call metacognitive awareness. Okay, can you define that for us? Because yes. a lot of people hear that word, but I don't yes. think a lot of people really understand what they mean what by that. What that means is standing back and watching yourself read. You are looking at yourself and you're saying, am I getting this? Is this making sense? Uh, what can I do about it if not? What are some of the things I can draw on? Uh, and at the end, is it working? So you are monitoring your understanding as you read. And if if you are not getting it, you do something about it. You don't just bark at print and turn pages and say, I read it. Nope. If you're not getting the message and the meaning, you haven't read it. You're barking at print. You're making sounds. And so they, you need to be... Where's a teenager if you are getting it and understanding and then do something about it? The second thing is to read. So many high school students, smart as they are, they listen to the lectures, they get it, they pass the test, they get good grades, they even get scholarships. But then they hit college and they are in for a royal shock because they have not learned how to read a difficult text. Um, And so I would insist for myself, if I were a teenager, that I get that book that's for that class and read that chapter before I go to class. 
uh, and come with questions. Read a little bit deeply every day. Even 20 minutes will make a difference, not just a superficial once through. Have genuine curiosity. This is the third point, a learning mindset. Not, you know, they'll say, oh, it's so boring. I want you to think of this. There are no uninteresting things in the world, only uninterested people. And you can make yourself curious. When you think that the most boring text you've ever read is so fascinating that people have spent their entire life studying it, you can find interest. And that's one of your jobs. Uh, That learning mindset, you come with actively trying to understand, not just going through the motions. Okay, the fourth big thing is what we call layered reading. And this is one of the big secrets of reading academic text. You do something by layered reading, you're going to read it more than once, and you say, oh, no way. I can't even get through it once. This 40-page chapter in biology where all these terms are new and I don't know any of this, you're telling me I have to read it more than once. Yes, and you will read it faster and know more by reading it three times than plowing through it word by word once. I can promise you I've seen it happen for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students. So the first layer is a before reading. You are going to prepare your mind to understand this text. And it can be very fast. And it's basically a preview um, so that you have an idea of what it's about. You have, you're curious. You want to know. You set a purpose because you know something about this text. The second layer is during. This is, I guess you might say, the most important, though I say all three are, but this is where you actually get the new information. Then, after you've finished, when I've asked students in the past before they've, I've taught them these things, I ask what they do after they read, and they say, incredulously, well, I close the book and celebrate. I'm done. No. Not if you want to learn. You need to do something after to solidify that knowledge, to think more deeply about it. Actually, the biggest part of learning from a text comes after. After you've gotten all the main ideas and things and you see what's there, now you analyze it, you take on the author, you... Uh, explain it, and you, of course, review to be sure that you have it. So those are a few things, and could teach a whole course on this. I know, and you do, and you have, <laughs> and I, I think that's wonderful because these strategies are, are so very important. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today, okay. Marnay. I appreciate it. Rachel Wadham with Literacy Learning Specialist Marnay Isaacson shedding light on how we can help our teens prepare for the reading rigors of college. Finally, I talked to Mark Burns, host of Special Collections on BYU Radio. Mark recently conducted an informal survey about people's favorite places to read. Maybe he'll even tell us about where he likes to read. 
Now, here's Mark. Well, where I like to read is a little bit embarrassing, but I'll get back to that later. And I, I should begin by saying that I grew up just loving to read. And I had books all the time. And I read in the car. I read in the bathroom. I read in bed and almost anywhere I could. I sent out a Facebook posting just to everyone on my list saying, what spaces or where do you like to read? And I got a ton of responses, about 40 people wrote back to tell me where those places were that inspired them to read. And I got them kind of categorized here in different kinds of ways. But I'll start with the inside, inside of a house. Most people, in most of the responses I got, had to do with houses and different parts of houses. Lots of people liked to read two places at home. One was the couch and the other one was the bed. And there's a third place as well that not many people will admit to that I'll talk about in a second. So lots of people said, I love to be on a couch late at night. Some people were even specific about particular kinds of couches that they own. One person said, I love a couch in the sunny corner of the kitchen with a view to the backyard and the bobcats that come and visit. This is someone who lives in Arizona near the mountains. Another person said, a corner of the living room couch in front of the AC vent with the living room shades drawn. So she had very specific things that made her feel comfortable and want to read. The other one, of course, is in the bedroom. And somebody said, I like to read under the covers with a lamp on the nightstand that can easily be turned off when I can't stay awake any longer. And that same person added, and she's a teacher, she said, If parents would let kids keep a light on at bedtime to read without electronics, most kids would learn to love reading. And clearly that's what, you know, she did when she was growing up. Someone else had kind of a sentimental response. He said, I love to read in the front room of the house where I grew up, late at night, with lights twinkling off the water of the Erie Canal across the street. And he's a friend of mine from North Tonawanda, New York, who grew up literally on the Erie Canal. And I will say I have a similar kind of one. I love to read in the winter when it's late at night, like under a blanket, and when there is snow falling down outside around me. So I'll say at this point that the thing that just astounded me was the depth of feeling of many of these responses. Reading is not just a kind of a a neutral informational activity. It has such profound emotions and feelings for so many people that do it. The other couple I like are specific places. One guy said, I love to study in the ancient studies room in the BYU library. I had several other people talk about the libraries where they went to graduate school as well, how they spent so much time in those places that they became like uh, second homes. And then my sister-in-law said, I love reading in libraries. It's my happy place. (laughs) which I love as well. And again, it's not just that it's a happy place, right? It's that you're reading. It's a happy activity in that happy kind of place. I'll say also the time of day seems to be important and late at night seems to win the case. One person said, I like to read late at night in a quiet house. Reading is up there on my list of favorites. Another favorite place that a few people admitted to sheepishly was, and you probably know this is coming, the bathroom. And I have to say, I do love to read in the bathroom. I keep books near both of the the toilets in our house. 
and I am known to get lost, as my wife calls it, go into the bathroom and emerge about 40 minutes later, having read 40 minutes of magazines or novels or whatever it is. And I had one other uh, response I thought was kind of amusing, having to do with clothing. And that was, I like to read wearing an ascot, smoking an old pipe. And this was a joke because the person who said that doesn't smoke. I know that for a fact. But uh, the feeling, though, is of comfort and of being surrounded and of feeling like you're at home. And I think reading gives those kinds of feelings and ideas and memories to lots and lots of people. And I think what I concluded from all the feedback I got from all my friends is it's not really the space in the end. It's the reading. It's wherever you can be uninterrupted and perform that activity in a way that's comfortable to you. So there are all kinds of spaces that we can read in. Some will love more than others, but as long as we have a book that we care for, any of those spaces will be absolutely glorious for us at that moment. Mark Burns, host of Special Collections on BYU Radio, sharing some of people's favorite places to read. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.